Hi, and welcome to another episode of Sentimental Garbage, the podcast where we talk about the chiclet that made us who we are. My name is Karen O'Donoghue, and I'm an author, a journalist, and a lumpy blue sweater. Joining me is author, podcaster, and perfectly placed Hermes scarf, Lindsay Kelk. Today we're talking about Lauren Weisberger's The Devil Wears Prada. We are. <gasps> so what made you choose this book? There were lots of reasons. Um, it is a book that... I identify really closely with Mm -hmm. in a career path way. Uh, It's one of the first books I read after I finished my degree and didn't read anything Mm. for some time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, Did you do an English degree? Yes. So it was years of Brontes and Elliot and then you like just rinse my brain with soap and foam. Yeah, Yeah. I did two years of just be like, I'll pick up the Da Vinci Code and then throwing it across the room and go, this is tosh. Uh, (laughs) But just not wanting to read anything of any substance. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then Devil Wears Prada. My mom gave me Devil Wears Prada and it was like, oh my God, I can enjoy reading again. Yeah. Um, And also it's, it's iconic. I feel like it's become iconic and oh, bigger than it is. Totally. Even. I mean, the thing about the thing I find difficult with this book is that it is one of the few books that people will readily say the movie is better. Yes. And that is it's partly a failing of the book because I think it, it was a debut. You do see the saggy bits that could have used a more diligent editor. Yeah. Um, I think Lauren Weisberger is a much better writer now. Um, but also, the film has fucking Meryl Streep in it. The film is amazing. And I hands down love the film. Yeah. Uh, the, the I think movie, it's a perfect film. Yeah, the book is just something... Di- it's different. It's totally different. And you've... I'd forgotten... Totally different. Well, it's really different. I thought tonally and character developmentally. I When I reread this, I was like, oh my God, I erased so much of the yeah. plot line of the book. Yeah, definitely. I had a similar interaction with the book to you in that um, I think it was definitely, it wasn't, it was like late teens or early 20s, like mm-hmm. 1920 um, when I read it. And I didn't love it at the time, but now, weirdly, I love it a lot coming back to it as someone who's yeah. almost 30 because I recognize the naivety of how I was when I was 22 and I came, yeah. or I was 21 when I moved to London from Ireland, and how like Andy I was, and how I'm, I have just enough distance from that person to find that endearing now. Yes. But I think if you're that, the same age as Andy, you find her behavior frustrating, you find her frustrating, mm-hmm. you find the whole situation frustrating. But now I see just how, like even that thing of like, um, so do this for a year and then I'm going to work at the <laughs> New Yorker. Know. It's like you massive knob. I know. As if you the entitlement. Ticket. Yeah, I'm so glad that we're on exactly the same page. Yeah. It's scary, isn't it? And yeah, I was this, I was similar. I, I read it when I was about 23, maybe 24. I, I read it when it came out in paperback here. Um, and I had just started working in publishing. I was an editorial assistant uh, at HarperCollins in the oh, children's wow. team. And I... Previous to that, straight out of uni, spent two years working in PR mm-hmm. for people that could only be described as would make Miranda Priestley look like your nan. Right. Like, I just had two <laughs> bosses straight out the gate that were actual monsters. Right. Two, and there are witnesses and like in the sure. in the parlance of 2019, I have the receipts. These women <laughs> were evil, like they were dark. And okay. my mom gave me the book then because she was like, oh, it reminds me of the stories you've told me about work. As though that was hilarious that sure. her only daughter was sat in a toilet crying every lunchtime because she'd been sent out to Brighton to get nipple cream for a woman who worked in London, but they only made it at this herbal shop in wow. Brighton. So I was like, well, okay, I'll read it. And when I read it then, I, I was like, oh, poor Andy, poor Andy, poor yeah. Andy. And now when I read it, I think... Oh, I was also I had something of a chip yeah, on my shoulder right? too. And as yeah. well, um, I think as well the film, both the film and season one of the show Girls became mm-hmm. things I watched on repeat. That they were like I had this tiny hard drive on my old laptop when I first moved to London, but those were the two things on it: Devil Wears Prada and season one of Girls, because I needed to feel like I was on a path that other women had done. Yes. You know, yes. that thing of being the least important person at a company, of being the person who does all these really demeaning errands um, that both are beneath you, but also you can't get right. Yeah, you've got to do it. No, that was me exactly. I grew up in a mining village in South Yorkshire, mm-hmm. really tiny, really tiny school. I was kind of... I'm not shitting on the kids I went to school with, but no one really had any interest in education or going to uni or leaving the village. You didn't mm-hmm. leave the village. Right. And I always wanted to. 
And uh, I left with, I did, I had a massive chip on my shoulder. I went from being the smartest kid in the school and not just in my year, but like four years. Yeah. Just because I'd actually like got the attention of the teachers and tried quite hard, whereas that was not the cool or done thing. So they had obviously also spent seven years telling me how great I was and how smart I was. Went off to uni, was drunk for three years. That was great. But then I wandered into my first job. I'm like, why is no one kissing my ass? Why is nobody telling me? Why am I in charge of the envelope drawer? (laughs) And same, like, why can't I work out the correct number of envelopes she needs? That's the thing. There's nothing worse in the world than being like, this is a stupid job. And I've just been to university and I've got a good degree. I've read so many books and she's taking me in the meeting room to scream at me and everyone can hear and I'm being screamed at because I didn't arrange the biscuits correctly on the biscuit But also I deserve it because I can't even get this thing right. Like I remember um, having to hole punch a big stack of documents Mm -hmm. and not getting that right. Like the the holes being slightly off center so that when you strung it through like a a punch thing that it it wasn't lining up and they were like you fucked that you need to go print get that go down to the printers get those printed again and do that and then being like well that just cost us 40 quid yeah and it being like you don't make me do this but also I can't even do this tiny thing yeah that Um, was me and the biscuit plate every day and I now I'm just like why didn't you have them show you how to do the biscuit plate one more time instead of just going like it's just biscuits I'll make up my own pattern for the biscuit plate and in hindsight now I'm like oh what a knob and that is something something that comes up in the book a lot is that um, and I have actually I wrote down a quote in pen here so I'll dedicate it that's how you know it's real Um, so um, Andy is on one of her many um, many errands for Miranda that she barely understands quite near the front of the book and she says, uh, it's better to do something wrong and spend untold dollars on fixing it than to ask for clarification. Yeah, and there, that's it, not true. No, that's not true. <laughs> it's never and, true. <laughs> right? And the thing is, is that you get the sense that if she had really been quite straightforward and and like if she hadn't been so hesitant, if she hadn't mm-hmm. been so like in fear, if she hadn't been coached by all these women around her, the Emilys yeah. and all these people, to be so terrified of Miranda Priestley, she, and she, she's been like, hey... That's not very clear. Yeah. Can you please explain to me that Miranda would be either A, respected it or B, booted her. Yeah, exactly. And, and she would be doing something else. Do you know Is what I mean? Is that not a better situation? Yeah. Exactly. I exactly agree. Every time I read it and I'd forgotten how much of the book is just this endless cycle of her being sent out on errands and messing it up. Yeah. And going out on errands and just fucking it up and going to get steak and then binning it. Every time she <laughs> yeah. binned food, I'm like, eat the food. Eat the Stop food. complaining about how skinny you've got and eat some dinner right i lived in new york there's food everywhere yeah it's everywhere (laughs) that that really annoyed me what's interesting is that um there is this i mean it is kind of a realistic novel about a fashion magazine in that the the thing around size and weight yes. is is quite disgusting and uncomfortable to read about, but mm. also disgusting and uncomfortable to live through. And yep. people do live like that. Yeah. We've all met them. I've lived in London long enough to meet them. I'm sure you lived in One New York One of my enough. bosses in the PR company uh, put me on Atkins when I was 22 <gasps> because she told me when I came in for my interview, she had looked through the window and told um, the girl that hired me that she couldn't hire me because I was too fat and ugly to work in PR. Wow. This was like 2003. Uh, and wow. She she told me this drunk because she was actually an alcoholic. I later discovered, and she's laughing, thinking it's a helpful, hilarious thing to tell me. But I'm 23, and then she's like, "Oh, we'll just do Atkins together. We'll do it together." Which then led to six months of me being sent to McDonald's to fetch her bunless oh burgers God. every morning. Um, but I wasn't I wasn't supposed to do that. I had to like go and get my own Atkins approved food, and it. It, it stayed with me for so long, for so long, because I was 23 and I did not know that was relevant to my skill set. I mean, I, I don't think there's any way of accessing this book without accessing your most traumatic early yeah. employment <laughs> self. Like that is, is what this what this triggering. It is the sense. horcrux yeah. of, like, <laughs> of traumatizing is. early employment yeah. stories. I had um, I was briefly an assistant for this woman who owned um. I'm not going to say who was she no, because it would be she was a woman. She was a woman and she owned her own company and good for her. Fucking lean in. Um, and um, I was briefly her assistant. And uh, every day she would just look out the blinds of her window that faced onto like Holborn and uh, just like commented on the fatness 
of the people oh. who walked down the street. And she herself was one of the, just, you know, not, not a thin woman yeah. and uh, constantly on some strange diet. Yeah. But it's always some very 80s diet, like yeah. a Weight Watchers yes, or, or a an Atkins. Diet yes, or something like that. It was always something disgusting. Right. Something it, it was never just, I'm going to eat healthily and do some exercise. It's like, I'm going to be rancid for a month. Oh, and you're all rancid. Yeah. She, she used to be in the office from 11 till 4 every day because yeah. those were her hours. And uh, she would send me out every day for her lunch, which was this. A packet of smoked mackerel <laughs> and a cup of miso soup from pret a And I would just sit and watch her across, like a desk across from her, the only two people in the room, just mm-hmm. watching her eat mackerel with her hands. <laughs> she sounds delightful. <laughs> she was fucking evil. Oh, that is nasty. Yeah, my boss's was a venti wet latte. Mm-hmm. I had to go and get a piping hot venti wet latte, yeah. which is why... Devil West Fonda is, again, quite triggering. Yes. Uh, and, uh, yeah, two cheeseburgers, but no buns. And I wasn't allowed to take the buns off myself. I had to make it very clear yeah. to McDonald's in Richmond that they were to give me no bun. No. Uh, and it, it was 2003. No, Atkins was only just becoming a thing. No one understood why the sobbing 22-year-old is saying, please don't oh put, a, put a bun on this. She will know. Uh, so yeah, if you just take it off the bun yourself, she will know. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, just, occasionally she would accuse me of it just in case, yeah. you know. And, and again, hindsight, I'm like she didn't know. This is like a trope that is so well worn in this book of yeah. like the the dragon lady who abuses the gormless assistant who's just yeah. trying her best. <laughs> um, why do you think that trope is both so prevalent in pop culture and also? so real to life. I don't know any woman who hasn't had this specific experience with a female boss. Yeah, I think that's why it's used so often is it's, yeah. it's, it's a true. shortcut. Yeah, it's a really easy way to connect with especially women. Yeah. I mean, men as well, but especially women uh, who tend to take more shit, I think, in the early days than a man yeah. might because men aren't conditioned to take as much shit as mm. we are. Uh, and I think it makes it's not I'm not I don't want to say lazy but it's a very easy way to connect with your readers yeah and I think that's something that's really interesting about this book when you read it now is Andy is not especially likable Mm. Um, we talk about that word all the time now like women have to be likable women have to be likable it's very hard to get a book away in women's fiction with a character who isn't likable and um, she's not very she's not easy to empathize with and no one around her is either because she's falling down this rabbit hole but is entitled with a chip on her shoulder, yes, being basically abused and taken advantage of in her job, but her friends aren't supporting her. They're not seeing it happen. Then they're not saying, they're, you know, oh, you're the luckiest girl in the world. A million girls will kill for this job. Yeah. And they just stick to that. At no point do they say, do you know what? You seem really unhappy and you, I know you want to stick it out, but it might not yeah. be worth it. Yeah. So it's really difficult because I think I empathize with her, but I don't like her. Yeah, because it's, I think in order to like Andy, you have to forgive yourself as a 22-year-old. Yeah. Yes. And I think that's really hard for some yeah. women. Yeah, definitely. Because I, I don't think, it's, it's like, I think when people talk about likable characters, they're talking they're generally talking about one of two things. Either A, it's like a Gillian Flynn character mm-hmm. who has like murderous instincts and like has a pure, like a, a strain of like violence in yeah. her that is compelling and kind of really itchy for you yeah. to sort of read. And, and you're, you're like, reading it with glee because yeah. you just can't stop. No, you want to know more about this Totally. Person. And yeah. you want, and, and she becomes a cipher for for you to sort of explore kind of female violence and yeah. the way that we're not allowed to explore yes, female violence. Yes, yes. Love Gillian Flynn. <laughs> can't believe we haven't done an episode on her yet. But there's the other thing, which is like, just a little bit of a cunt. Yeah. <laughs> Which is... Yeah. And that's where I specialize. Right? <laughs> in but, my books. but that's the hard but, yeah. sell. That's yes. actually what's harder to sell than the whole female violence. I find that. it a really hard balance because I think creating a character... And, and it just gets harder every day. I talked about this with someone recently, um, one of my friends who's a writer, and I was like, we, we've put ourselves in a position now where the theory is everyone's like, oh, I don't want to read any more books about adorable, quirky girls who drop their handbag on their tampon falls out because that's mm. bullshit. But also, I don't want to read about someone who isn't likable. I want to empathize with this person. Yeah. Like, we've actually, instead of widening the goalposts, we've narrowed them again. And it's like so now, interesting. We, we have in Gone Girl, we have the cool girl trope. Yes. And Andy is not the cool girl. Andy is a long way away from the cool girl. But while we're saying we all hate the cool girl, the books that are getting published, there's a lot of books about the cool girl. And I just find it, it's really hard, I think, at the minute. I would be fascinated to read Devil Wears Prada if it came out today. 
Because mm. I don't know how different it would be, but I don't think it would be considered chiclet. Because it's not. The, the romance storyline is kind of forced in there. It's it really tacked is. on. It's a woman's experience in her first year in her job. I, it's really hard to pull out the romance as the key to it. Right. And even I, I, I really do feel bad for... Um Adrian Grenier. Adrian Grenier's character, Alex. Alex, I yeah. feel bad for him, but he's also a puss. I feel bad for him okay, because he's the only actor in that film <laughs> that, like, despite being a very handsome man, like, you've got all these tour de force performances. Yeah. Stanley Tucci, Emily Blunt, Meryl Streep, Anne Hathaway. Like, and then just, like, Adrian Grenier. Oh, no one yeah. cares. You Grenier's know? got Entourage in the corner. Entourage! Yeah, I mean, bless him. Um, but even in the book, like, I find him tedious. I'm like, no, I know you have a very important, hard job, but support your girlfriend. Yeah. She also, don't write it off just because it's a fashion magazine. How dare you? I find their whole relationship, I, honestly, like, I don't, um, I gotta say, I, I like this book for the reasons that I mentioned to you a mm-hmm. minute ago, which is that it kind of reminds me of a time period and the yes. way I thought and felt. I don't think I like it like it as a book. And I think their relationship grates on me yeah. because they, they do have this early 20s thing where, where it's like, well, he's a school teacher and actually yeah. the kids know prisons better than they know. <laughs> I know. They, they, they know which prison is better to be in. I'm like, oh, shut up. It's You're so gonna on the You're going to break up nose. with him in two it's, years it's, anyway. Because oh, it is a very, I think it is a very accurate depiction of that post-college relationship where you try and have make your it work post-college and, relationship work in the real world when in reality you've just become two different people from the off. But in the book, all the blame is placed on her. That's not fair. That's not, she's not entirely responsible for this nonsense. I think what's interesting as well, the first, um, so she has like her first week at Runway and, um, which I think is a really nice touch from a writerly perspective of um, the first week she spends at Runway is uh, Miranda's not around. Yeah. So we get these like phone-ins from Miranda, but it's mostly kind of low-key in that Mm -hmm. she's wrapping gifts and sending them and and there's this fantastic bit where she says to Emily and it's the first time they actually have anything to do with one another where they're like, they see each other as humans. Where she says, how much do you think this costs? And Emily says, oh, I think $12,000 for all the champagne. And she said, no, how much does this cost? As in, what's the FedEx? What's the packaging? What's this? And she's like, oh, well, this is how much the shipping costs. And this is how much our labor costs, which is like the last six days of us being here. And then realizing that the least expensive thing on this long list is is their time and labor. Yeah, And that is so so true and to the yeah. incredibly demeaning experience of being a low-income person yeah. at a very high capital place. And just shows you what a tiny cog you are in the wheel. It's such yeah. a, a, a brilliant way of writing it to show you without saying you mean less than this bottle of champagne, yeah. but it's saying like you mean less you, than you this You do mean less champagne. than this, yeah. Yeah. And this, and this, anyway, she goes to her first um, dinner with friends afterwards and um, or her family possibly mm. and uh, explaining what she got up to and then and I think we've all had this, especially if we've worked in PR or media or yeah. publishing, of like these things that seem crucially important in life or death when you're in the office and you start relaying them to people outside the office and they just seem so silly and people are glazed over and no one understands how important these things are. Yeah. And you're both disgusted with yourself and like amused by yourself by, by this. But eventually Andy gets to this point where she's like, oh, people don't get it. You don't yeah. get how important this is, you know? Yeah, and I find that, yeah, exactly that. It was one of those, that's one of the things that drew me to it when I very first read it. My first job that, as a PR was um, half PR and half product development for the company that uh, made Groovy Chick stuff. <gasps> Bang on the door? Bang on the door. No. It was their licensors, the people that ran the licensing. So I am sat wow. in the toilets crying every lunchtime because it was a super fun environment that's been taken to court several times, so I won't go into really? it. But they were taken to court <gasps> many times from for dismissals and staff treatment. Uh, it's, a, it's a matter of court records, so I shan't touch oh it. I was never involved. But I would be sat in the toilets crying, and then I would have to go home for the weekend and explain to my parents that my job was like putting a cartoon character on a lunchbox. And this was sending me like oh to God. the madhouse. Like I was like, I really feel like I'm not well. Wow. And they would be like, but you put a cartoon character on a lunchbox. And I can oh still to this day like tell you the Pantone references. But but even now, do you get the point where like I feel like you I feel like women in especially women in, in with jobs like that. Mm-hmm. And even now, like I'm a I'm a full time author yeah. and I'm so lucky to be in that position. But even now I still feel that slight sense of like when my partner comes home from work and he's like, Well, I had two meetings with these people and three meetings with these people and then I did this and I'm like, I made up some people <laughs> who then kissed. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, totally. And I find myself 
uh, diminishing it constantly. I, I'm forever saying to people like, oh, I just it's just rom-com, just women's fiction. Yeah. And I'm trying really hard not to because what we do is really hard. I, yeah. Again, even now I feel bad saying it, but I know I work really hard. Um, and like another thing I really love about it as well is um, the the I think my favorite parts of the book are definitely the earlier stages when she's just getting into it and uh, interviewing and she just meets Miranda and she seems fine yeah. and like um, but there's this fantastic bit where she goes for a series of interviews at Runway she meets various members of the team she's kind of escalated she seems to keep meeting people and then she keeps getting escalated off the chain she eventually yeah. meets Miranda which is very true to life of yeah. how interviews actually go and actually I don't really think I've seen interviews done this well in a book before because mm-hmm. generally whenever it's done dramatically for anything books, films, TV it's like and you walk in and you're with the important person yeah, and you're then not meeting ask, that person for like four days yeah yeah, yeah you're, you have to like charm several people through the ranks <laughs> many of whom you'll never see again and you'll yeah. also be introduced like and this is um, Anna from finance and you're like why am I being introduced to her yeah because like, you need to charm Anna from finance because yeah. she has a direct line straight to the person yeah. you're going to be working for but you don't know because you're 22 exactly and you yeah. don't realise that like and there's something my dad used to drill into me when I was younger and I, I realised now how good advice it was that from the minute you walk in the door you're on the job interview yeah 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 100% yeah and everyone you meet from that from literally yeah. level level 1 to level 10 is like yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, um, but yeah so she's coasting through this sort of interview situation and it's very clear as a reader and also as someone who's 29 um, as being like oh clearly somebody has quit in a hurry or yeah. whatever clearly they need someone to fill a gap quickly yeah, and they're like they're selling her all this mantra of like oh Miranda's amazing and after a year you'll be able to do anything you want and uh, she's this great person and they all have this weird monotone that she finds mm-hmm. slightly suspicious Yeah, and um it's like it's kind of like watching a horror movie where like people are slightly off and you yes, don't know it's like why. Get out! Quite, it's a little it bit is. get out. Yeah, it is. <laughs> like, well, what, who's in your brain? Is it? It's not you. And it's like no, Miranda's in their brain. Yeah, That's who's there. and she doesn't have the. She's too naive and too innocent to realize she's being sold a lemon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. she just thinks she should take it. But even then, like it, it drives me slightly crazy the andiness of it when she's trying to break Emily all the time, how she desperately wants to break Emily into confessing yeah. that she secretly hates it. Mm. And when I was reading that part, I was like, leave her alone. She like, has a she coping wants mechanism. To work here. This, she wants this to be her career. This is how she's getting by. Yeah. She has to do two more years of this. You think you're helping. You're not helping. And now, you know, she's Emily Blunt in my head. So especially leave her alone. Um, but <laughs> honestly, woman alone. Yeah, <laughs> that Stanley Tucci will be her brother-in-law one day. I know, that's don't make this difficult I know I love it it's so nice I love it so much Uh, but yeah in the book that I found that really difficult to read when she's constantly needling at Emily and like it's not actually going to make you feel better and I think there there is a moment when um, she's helping uh, Miranda hosts a dinner party at the Met um, for her brother-in-law's engagement party Mm -hmm. and wants it to this big fancy affair and Andy has to come and be an assistant and she makes a friend who works at the Met who gives her a photo of Miranda looking sad and lonely and bad. And she's like, oh, you know, you didn't think there were photos of her looking bad, ha, ha, ha. But she prints it out and leaves it for Andy to take home with her to feel better, to Mm. look at it, to make her feel better. Mm. And Andy tears it up. And is like, looking at photos of her looking sad and lonely isn't going to make me feel better. And it's one of my favorite moments of self-awareness in a book that has so little. (laughs) I, I really was like, oh, that was the moment I wish I'd had when I was in those jobs. Yeah. Because I didn't have it. It was only when I got, when I left those jobs and got my job in publishing and was walking around all day, like, no one's called me. No one's called me like the worst yeah. words. No one's told me I'm fat. No one's told me these weird things. I didn't know jobs were like this. Oh my God. So it's... I was pleased for her to have that. But then it makes it more stressful when she just keeps being stupid. <laughs> see, that, see, that's the thing is that these, like, these glimmers of realizations do yeah. happen and then she's just sucked back in but also it's frustrating from a narrative point of view but also very true to the life of how that actually happens because we've yeah. all we've all been in what I would term as an abusive uh, employment situation yes. I, th- I think like this is something I've sort of been working on in my head for a while and I've written about it in various places but like um, we talk about emotionally abusive relationships mm-hmm. and the tenets of those things are um, 
relationships that make you doubt yourself. Yeah. Uh, that uh, can consistently manipulate your self esteem. That financially hamper you so that you can't leave. And there's all these like you can go on any sort of um, women's refuge site and yeah. you can see all yeah, these all the tenants mm-hmm. of what an emotionally abusive. And it, you you can there's so many times where I've had a friend who's been crying over her job that she just won't leave. And, then, and I'll pull up that list and I'll be like, yeah. blah, 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 you're in an abusive relationship. Yeah. Um, and I think we need to get better at, at seeing that and not being like, no, this is just what jobs are. <laughs> but also it's what's not. very true to life is that you can have these realizations over and over again, but still not have the strength to leave. Yeah. Oh, 100%. I stayed, I, my PR terrible boss situation was two jobs over two years. Mm. And I left the first one and just thought it, there can't be anything worse than this, went to the second one. And it was worse. Mm. But because I'd left a job and I was so terrified of having two short... And one I was in 11 months and the other I stayed for the full year. But I was so scared of having two short uh, jobs on my CV right at the beginning of my career. I was, you're just going to have to figure it out. You're just going to have to stay. You're Mm. just going to have to make this work. And it was so much worse than the first situation because the first situation was a bully who bullied everybody. And the second situation was someone who bullied everyone, but on a very personal, intimate, scary level. Oh, wow. Um, I'm so sorry you went through all this. I mean, now I'm like, oh, well, that's fine. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was, it was, it's, I mean, I made one of my best friends for life in that job because the two of us were like, oh, you, you do. Yeah. It. it was like the war. We were like together. We will get through this. Uh, and we did. And, and we're stronger for it. But I hate the idea of like, oh, you have to do these things to be stronger for it. You don't. You do not have to stay in these situations. If I, think, I had left, there would have been a plan B. I think you're right. I think you have to you have to have these experiences. No, you don't have to have these experiences. You don't. However, it takes being in one of those experiences in order to understand and empathize with other people who are yes. in them. And I think that is something that stays with you later in your career. Mm-hmm. And I think it helps you notice interns and assistants and like Whenever I worked in a job where an intern came in, I've always tried to at least do the kind of, hey, if you want to go for lunch or ask yes. me any coffee yeah. or, ask me, or ask me questions over coffee, I'm here and be that person. And I think that is why you increasingly, you can always spot people who maybe their parents were yes. in a position so that they didn't have to work during university and then they mm-hmm. went straight into like, quite a nice job and yeah. then they were in a graduate program where they were escalated and you can spot them because they're yes. not aware of people in the office yeah. that are believed. And them. I knew a lot of those in publishing. That was, and yeah. I mean, book publishing is an industry that it's changing now, but definitely I was 20, it was 15 years ago since I started in book publishing and uh, it was very much... Uh, oh, that's so-and-so's daughter. Or you know who that yeah. is, don't you? And there was a lot of velvet headbands and a lot of Venetias. And I'm like <laughs> Lindsay from the Pit Village. And I'm just like, what yeah. am I doing here? This is the best. And yeah. um, But on, on one hand, it was great because it made me so committed to making it work. I and I the worked same way. Yeah. so hard. And I'm not saying the other people didn't. Some did, some didn't. Because um, it's that interesting thing about privilege where... And, and Andy, to an extent, in the book, has so much privilege because she has a family she can go back to. She has mm. people who will help like she her. She lives in Connecticut. Like, she's yeah. like an hour she's away. She's come from a very, like, comfortable background. Yeah. She's not dragging herself up by a bootstrap. She wouldn't have been welcomed through that door if she wasn't already from where she was from. Right. She would never have even got into Elias Clark, let alone into an interview. Yeah. Um, and I know that about my background, too. There were people that wouldn't have even got through the door that I was lucky enough to get through. Mm-hmm. But it's what you do with that opportunity when you get it yeah and this is such an interesting example of someone who works really hard but begrudges every moment of it and resents it and even as the narrative uh, as it is starts to develop through the book in the movie it's obviously so much more it's funnier and played for laughs and played for emotions Whereas in the book, it's like you just see her turning into Miranda. Mm. You just see her. And it's not even like turning into her. It's like she just starts to understand and apologize and accept it. Yeah. And she starts being a Miranda apologist too. But not even in the same way as the others who just cannot allow any criticism of Miranda. I don't think she knows it's happening until Miranda says to her, oh, you remind me a lot of me. Yeah. And and I think that's what can happen when you come in from a position of privilege to these places because you begrudge it, you resent it, then you get used to it and then you think you're entitled to it. Whereas if you never felt entitled to it and you were yeah. always had, you know, now we would say imposter syndrome, if you were always thinking, what am I doing here? What am I doing here? I don't deserve to be here. I think something in you won't let you switch that off, mm. which can hamper you because it holds you back from maybe doing the best work. 
but that sense of entitlement where Andy just always feels like she's entitled to her success. Yeah. And it takes being told you resemble someone you hate. Right. But and she and she you're right, she walks in there like that. Yeah. Yeah, and, from the um, off, she's just like, Ugh. and she keeps it's the it's the thing of Ugh, like fashion, Ugh, fa- but there's even this thing, and like, it 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 was very painful to read because I I remember literally saying these words as a 21 year old moved to London specifically to get a job in journalism. Yeah. Yeah. She says, "Ugh, better than working at some trade publication, I suppose." I know. It's like, oh my god, the people at trade publications. Ugh. It's, it's not easy to get no. those jobs and it's hard to keep them and they do I, fucking amazing work. I did a summer internship on uh, Toy News when I was at uni. Oh, really? Which is a glorious time. Um, and I love it known that everyone oh, worked wow. there, worked really hard. Yeah. But, and it would be like, oh, you're just like writing about toys. I'm like, yeah, but it still has to go out. You still have to yeah. go and like do all the meetings and talk to all the people and put it together and it's like a two-man operation. Honestly. It's really hard work. Trade publications are the truest form of journalism <laughs> in that it is like, you have to like go to a conference in yeah. Antwerp and just like sit there for three days and be like, okay, yeah. here's what, you know. It's like the- Milk Industry Monthly. It's yeah. Like, what's new in pasteurization? <laughs> you make that readable and interesting. You, I can make Gucci, the new season Gucci, an interesting read in Completely. 15 minutes without trying. I cannot talk about what's new in oat milk, you know, <laughs> and make it readable. These people work so hard, so hard, and he's a knob. And then I remember, but I remember thinking, um, first coming to London and being like, oh, I guess it'd be better than working at some trade. Because <laughs> I remember I was I was um, uh, sending in, um, you know, first I was sending in my uh, CVs to like stylist. Yeah. And then I would send them in, then stylist obviously never got back to me. And then uh, to like Bella or like yep. take a break. And then obviously they never got back to me. <laughs> And then I eventually was like, you know what? I think I'm going to apply for a job. Actually, it's very big of me to apply for a job at a trademark because, you know, they would be lucky to have me. You'll lower yourself to a trademark. I know. And then, of course, they never got back to me. It's like, (laughs) oh, my God. The end, again, entitlement is such a boring word. And it's a really boring phrase to, like, talk about a whole generation of people who were promised a lot and then didn't get it. But um, The indignity of being 22, man. Like, it's, it's... it's just incomparable. I was talking to someone the other day about how when you talk about being a teenager and why first love and YA is so appealing to so many people as books, because when you were a teenager, everything was life or death. You were feeling yeah. it all for the first time. And that's yeah. why it's so compelling now, because it reignites that in you. This book entirely reignited my indignity of being 22 <laughs> that I had never felt before and have never felt since because it was such a humbling experience to get the biscuit plate wrong on a daily basis for 11 yeah. straight months. And I just think there was no other book captured it quite as well for yeah. me as that. But yeah, man, I don't enjoy Andy. And the book is a, it's really hard to enjoy. She's, Even though she's a fun, she's like, a fun I don't care. mirror, you I know? Hate you. I hate you all. I hate you. I hate the boyfriend. I quite like the poor friend who's a raging alcoholic and you do nothing to help her. Yeah. Um, and the lenient judge. <laughs> it really needs to feel like yeah, I need a word with him. Up. Yeah, yeah like she so, like definitely ran a car into traffic whilst hammered, and you were just like, she didn't mean to. She's a nice girl. <laughs> this is de- it's definitely like um, a a chronicle of the things white women get away with. This yes. book. <laughs> yeah. Oh God. Yeah. It really is. One of the key differences between the book and the film, mm-hmm. uh, and as I say, they are very complicated and knotty in my head. Yeah. Um, is that in the film, she has to sort of like, te- like uh, Emily gets hit by a car or something. She gets the flu. I think it's the flu in the, is it the flu in the book? I can't remember. No, no she, she gets, gets hit by the car when she's getting the scarves, isn't it? Yes. There's that amazing moment where the scarves oh, go fantastic. up flying. Which I'm always looking for in the book and it's not there. I know. Yeah, and then she gets mono in the book. And then she gets, <laughs> yeah, so in the book she gets hit by a car and then I'm... Um, uh, Miranda says to Andy oh tell tell Emily and this becomes yeah. like the big betrayal yeah. that um, she's going to go to Paris over Emily yes, yes you're right and um, and then while she's in the book uh, while she's there her, friend, her best friend Lily um, is involved is in, a, in a drunk driving accident that she yeah, caused that she caused yeah and I I just feel like driving a car the wrong way down Madison Avenue whilst hammered um, yeah. would just there wouldn't be a lenient judge for that as far as I know. I lived in New York for six years. I'm feeling strongly I would have seen that on New York One. <laughs> and there was no leniency involved. Yeah. But, you know. That's it's very. She survives, which is great. 
I love having um, just like come out of my debut year, as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a lot of comfort because obviously I'm now at that stage where I hate my debut novel. Yeah. And, um, we, all, we all do. That. We all do. <laughs> but I love seeing other debuts and recognizing where a debut writer has just been like, well, fuck it. And then there's a car accident, <laughs> I guess. I feel like, yes, I, I see the editorial note that said this needs turning up at the end like we need more yes. drama at the end and you're like yeah car crash I, I guess smash it let's yeah. do it it's what my uh, writing tutor would have called throwing the teddy in the crash which oh. was his favorite narrative device which was if it's not dramatic enough it was a story that he told of being a young junior reporter on a local magazine uh, newspaper and he went to cover a car crash with um the senior reporter and when they got there, there was really no story. It was just like a really dramatic crash, but nothing had happened and everyone was fine. Mm-hmm. So the, the senior reporter went to the news agents, bought like a little teddy bear, smushed it with his <gasps> foot and threw it into the crash. And he was like, just take a photo of that. That's our story. And my teacher at the time was like, but there, there's no story. There was no kid in the car. And he was like, no, but it makes a great picture. So now we don't need more of a story. We just have this compelling photo. Um, and I, that's what this is in this wow. book to me. That is Lauren Weisberger throwing the teddy in the crash. She's just like, let's throw in some drunk driving. Totally. Because they're, they're really, in terms of this book being like a hitting the beats that you would expect in like yeah. a hero's journey, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. <laughs> she's entitled and annoying. Then she's entitled and tired. Yeah. Uh, and then she is entitled and enjoying it. And then it's the end. Yeah. Oh, what's actually it brings us on to a very fun point, which we haven't touched on yet, mm. which is the fact that this is, by Weisberger's own admission, yeah. a very thinly disguised um, account of her own yes. experience at Vogue with supposed Diana Wintour. And even there's, there's more um, comparisons you can see, like um, uh, Nigel is obviously Andre Leon Talley. Yes. Yes. Coming in in his capes Which, and swishing love, around. Who I love. Welcome to the dollhouse. Baby. Yeah, he might be my favorite character in the whole book. Oh, he's fantastic. Um, yeah. So it's interesting because as a novelist, I've spent a lot of my time saying like, oh, God, why is it that like when men write things, it's invention. When women yes. write things, it's memoir. Yes. And then the Lauren Weisbergers come along and they do thinly disguise yeah. memoir. And you're like, well, in that, you know, how do you feel yeah. about um, sort of exactly auto fiction? And memoir? I feel like the parts of the book that don't hold up as well, i.e. the Christian Collingsworth and the uh, car crash. And I, they're the parts that feel the most invented. The parts yeah. that ring the most true, true are like the Christmas packing and they're going out for errands and you're like, oh, because you did that. You lived that. And I'm yeah. seeing your life I, on and this you can page. And f- you, you can feel the reality yeah. of it. The which, bows. Which the is, countless bows. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> both. Mm. Um, but it's real double-edged sword because I totally have the same thing as you. I wrote a book. My first book um, was I Heart New York. Uh, which is another reason I love Devil Wears Prada. It's in New York, and I love New York. I wrote, and we should plug, actually, that the reason you're in here today is that you're yeah. in here for your new book, <laughs> so I bad. Heart Hawaii. Yes. Uh, so you've written, a lot of, you've written a lot of these books. And, I've written a lot uh, of these books about a lot of different places, and none of it is autobiographical. Sure. But I Heart New York came out uh, 10 years ago, and I moved to New York about a month after the book came out. So obviously, you, you know how it is with the debut mm-hmm. author. It's not like everyone's, and there was no real social media around then. No one's banging my door down to be like, is this a true story mm-hmm. at the time? Because you're a debut author who means nothing to anyone. Let's see how it goes. And then as the my future books came out and my profile raised, and I, again, I was same as you, writing for magazines, doing stuff like that. Um, people just assumed that it was autobiographical mm. because they no, who's going back to check what date I moved to New York? Yeah, uh, yeah, they just assumed that I had written the book after I moved to New York, and it was based on my reality, and it wasn't at all. It was the opposite. It was my fantasy book. It was my escapist fantasy from a miserable life. Mm. Um, so I find it very difficult when people assume that women cannot create, yeah. uh, even though it's our job. Uh, and Devil Wears Prada doesn't really help itself because the bits that are more invented aren't its strongest points. Yeah. And I think her next couple of books too did not help because they just never connected in a way that no. Devil Wears Prada did until The Wives, which I love The Wives. Is her most, is her most oh, recent Oh, really? Book. I haven't read that. What is that? Um, uh, uh, Lauren Weisberger's most recent book that came out, I think, last year. Uh, in England, it was called The Wives. In America, it's called When Life Gives You Lululemons, which I can't say with a straight face. Wow. God bless her UK editor. <laughs> that yeah. Bad title. Yeah. And everyone's like, isn't it great? I'm like, 
no, absolutely not. Um, but it's great. That's a and it's Emily is one of the main characters. Um, but ten years Ooh. on Emily, like grown up Emily, it's, I super recommend it. I really, really enjoyed it. Oh great! Uh, well, I can't really wait to. Fun. Yeah, it's set amongst like a yeah, Connecticut. Yeah. I think it's Connecticut or like an upstate New York, like rich <gasps> wivesy set. Do you know what? Now that you say it, I can see the cover in front yeah. of me. I've seen that in lots of bookshops. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm going to pick that it's up. It's really, it's really fun. It's like a real fun summer romp. Yeah, um, and I really loved it. But the ones in between Devil Wears Prada and the Wives were not for me. I believe there was a Revenge Wears Prada. Yes, I was told by someone who worked very closely to the book not to read it. Oh, I see. <laughs> if I enjoyed the first one. <laughs> Oh or the movie. Uh, but it did very well. She's fine. Reminded me a lot while I was reading it of um, how, because obviously it reminds me of self, da, 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 mm-hmm. city, coming city as a young yeah. girl, young woman, um, of the profound whiteness of that experience. Yes. And yes. how we actually don't get that story through told through a woman of color's lens. Because no. um, like, there's all these bits where you can so tell that her life is so entirely white. Yeah. From yeah. like, I mean, she went to Brown. Like, and <laughs> I don't know anything about the American Ivy League, but you know You know, know I mean? all that you need to know. Right. And uh, it's, and, and she, she's from Connecticut. It's so causative. Playing Scrabble so with suburban. her dad, her psychiatrist dad. Right. Like, oh, this is a nice life. Right. You've had a nice life. And then she's in the city and she, um, she asks for directions and she realizes the man who's just sold her coffee only has enough English to sell yeah. her coffee. Um, she, there's this very uncomfortable line where she can't tell the difference between her between two her Indian Between her two roommates. Yeah. Which, like, they, from that moment on, they were entirely indistinguishable from, to me. And the dismissiveness of that line of saying, yeah. from that moment on, in this book, you will hear no more about these characters. And that makes me so uncomfortable. Right. Because it's not okay. And there is a kind of a reference to... Um, I feel bad now. This isn't. I don't feel like this is my point. My fault as a reader because she's so dismissive of the characters. Yeah. These two Indian girls who work a very corporate job yeah. and they never they never cross paths no. because they they both work demanding hours. They they do get this. You get the sense that um, this is not like. I think this is why it's such a universal book. This is not Andy's one struggle with her job. This is like happening in every apartment yeah. all over the city, yes. all over Harlem, all over Brooklyn, all over Williamsburg, like where all these identical 20-somethings are working like 20-hour days yeah. in order to just satisfy these bosses who barely remember their names. Yeah. Honestly, I'd love to read their version. I want Kendra's book. Yeah. What was Kendra doing? What was Kendra going through? Like poor Kendra who was working like... 18-hour days and then passing out in a room that she had to share. Like, yeah. like, you had your own room, Andy. Shut up. Yeah, come on, Andy. <laughs> yeah. She I'm... had a support system when she got there. She had a boyfriend and a best friend already in the city, you know? It's it, it's it's a book that I find fascinating, but yeah, it's, I don't know if it's a book that I like to No, yeah, it, it is fascinating. I'm really glad that you brought it in today because when you suggested I was like, Okay, I don't remember loving that book, but yeah. it's given me a lot to reflect on yeah. and a lot it's like it's a prickly book, you it's, know. I think it's a really fascinating book to reread now under a, the lens of how we perceive women and what women went through and what women have lived with for so long that we're now reassess, reassessing all of that because yeah. it was so written off as fluffy chiclet. Like it was eviscerated in the New York Times. They destroyed it. They said it made, I read the review yesterday, it made the nanny diaries look like it was written by the Bronte sisters. That's what the New York Times said about it. Wow. And it's been elevated so high, partly because of the film and because the film came out very close to the book. It was only a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And I think it's been elevated. And because it was Anna Wintour. And yeah, and Anna Wintour, and elevated and sustained. And I wonder how it would have stood up um, through time without the film. And yeah. how it would have been considered because it did come out in, you know, the heat of the Marion Keys and the Sophie Kinsella and that first big chick boom. Yeah. So it got lumped in with it, even though I mean, it's a terrible thing to say. I don't mean lumped in, in that any of that was derogatory because they're all fantastic books mm. by fantastic writers. But it doesn't sit necessarily closely with. No, because there's no real romance. It doesn't sit with a shopaholic. No. It doesn't sit with shopaholic at all. Uh, it just, yeah, I, I would love to see how it would have lived past its publication mm. if the film had never happened. Do you know what I think as well? I think um, the film as well had such a long life over yes. and over. Obviously, it's a great film. It's really well scripted. It's really funny. The performances are fantastic. Yeah. But I think it has a cult status now. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it was released in 2006. 2008, we had the recession. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think... There was such a global thing of these of overeducated people who now have nothing to do with that thing, yeah. and that, and also, 
watching it in a post-recession landscape, which yes. I used to do, mm-hmm. you did have the real sense that Andy cannot quit this job yeah. because there is yeah. not any more jobs. She is lucky. A million girls would kill for yeah. this. I think, interestingly, reading it in a 2002 context, which is when it came out, I think, yeah. um, it's very like, oh, she just thinks that there's an, an opportunity like this won't come along again yeah. because it people will, are telling her. It but it will. But if you read it in a post-recession context, yeah, it, really won't. it won't. Like, yeah. And I think the thing the film does so well that I don't get from the book, in the book, she's so direct derisive of the designers even though she comes to know so much about them and becomes quite sneering of like oh as if I'd wear that with that like oh yeah. I would like this looks great with my Prada boots and my you know Gucci jacket blah 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 it never feels glamorous it never feels no. enjoyable whereas the film is just dripping in glamour and but Andy very really naughty glamour yeah oh my god there's the blazer a, the blazer <laughs> and the double Chanel strand of pearls and the high boots and when she walks out to hail, yeah. hail the cab and it does the cut of the montage of all the outfits suddenly that she wears I see. oh my god <laughs> of course she suddenly sees suddenly she oh, sees it's glorious but I just think that's what the film did so well. They turned it so that you were with her looking in the mirror and saying, like, oh, my God, actually, this is amazing. I yeah. love having these lovely things. I love giving my friend this Marc Jacobs handbag. I love yeah. giving my boyfriend a new phone. Whereas in the book, it's it's so trying. It, she's dragging you along with her. She is. Instead of you ride, riding this roller coaster of, like, look at this fabulous, glamorous life that is hard work. But Look yeah. at it. It's great to watch. And do you know what? I think as well, what's, what sucks is I kind of, I wish Sophie Kinsella wrote this book yeah. because there's such comic potential yes. that in the writing never really gets hit. No, it's not. I don't think it's funny at all. I no. don't find it even slightly, as you might have t- learned from how I've spoken yeah. about it so far. Um, and I, but it could be, I love to write comedy and it's not. It's there's not. all these situations that are in themselves comic, but because the yeah. writer hasn't has much clearly hasn't had much distance from the experience yes, to find it funny yes, yeah. it's not a funny anecdote no. to the writer yet because it's only yeah. been like I think Lindsay uh, way too no, you're Lindsay yes. <laughs> <laughs> Lindsay Lauren yes, uh, like, Weisberger this is where I out myself as Lauren Weisberger if, yeah I would love to again <laughs> I don't know why Sophie Kinsella would um, rewrite this but I would <laughs> like, like her to if you're a loose end Sophie yeah um, one, you know, give one us a thing shout. that um, one of the few things that was lifted wholesale from mm-hmm. the book to the movie and it's become iconic and we yes. have to talk about it, which is the blue sweater scene. Yes. I think that is the most fantastic bit of I think it is the cool girl speech mm-hmm. of um of yeah. writing you know, stuff about women's jobs. That sort of thing of it's the only moment where Andy is truly skewered on yeah. the sense that, like, oh, you think this is beneath you. And the whole thing of, like, that lumpy blue sweater made its way up from some department. Yeah. Or, hang on, I think I actually have the whole thing here. I read, I, yeah, I feel like I read something recently, or not that long ago, in, I think it was, like, Vulture. They had an oral history of it or something, and they talked about that scene and how much of it, they how they wrote it and wrote it and wrote it and wrote it and wrote it until it was perfect. Uh, and and the way like, Stroop does that so as well, where she's... Like she's um, get, she she's styling a model st- as she's doing oh, it, yeah. as though neither job takes any effort or attention to her. She's like, oh, I think we'll add that belt yeah. to that outfit. And I think it was Celine who sent Cerulean Blue down the catwalk yeah. in this. And she was it a just Delorento, is, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. And she's literally just sat there, dying. She stood dying. Dying, dying with soup down a jumper and oh and also that thing between her like, again it's just a film thing but like yeah. um, her and uh, Nigel of uh, she kind of in mid thing she turns to him and she goes is this a bit is this a bit uh, and then he goes no 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 I thought the same but no yeah 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 and it's like oh it's like this thing of like oh they have such a Mm -hmm. intrinsic chemistry and like they just know each other so well those characters have known each other for 20 and that's something that happens in the book she quite often we touched on it a little bit with Emily but she tries to get other characters on side and everyone is constantly telling her that she's the one that's wrong you know even when she gets Emily on side a little bit Emily even then has to say but you have to understand what she is extraordinary at what she does yeah you want to destroy her for the way she behaves but that doesn't take away from how she is actually the greatest human in the world that's ever done this and yeah. you can't take that away from her and she does the same with Nigel she tries to be like ugh Nigel but he's like no you're you're yeah. wrong to treat her the way that you are you 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 condescend to be here but realistically yeah. you are lucky we're not joking a million girls would kill for this job yeah. and you deign to show up every day 
and she and, never and really like, seemed to learn that lesson. Don't think we don't see you. As yeah, in, like, they, exactly. Don't think we don't see you rolling your eyes. Don't you think, you know, like we get mm-hmm. that you're trying hard, but you also, the yeah. reason that no one's endeared to you, it's not because of your, your a, few, a few pounds over yeah. our weight. It's because we see you rolling your eyes. And we even see Miranda this. says that to her. Even yeah. Miranda right at the end when they're in Paris says, don't think I don't see the eye rolls, the size. You know, I know how you feel, but let me still ask you what it is you want to do. And then still offers to put the call in for her, still offers to help her. Yes, she may have been a tyrant. Yes, she may have been a monster, but she actually was going to follow through on what she promised. She actually held up her end of the the bargain and your employment contract. You are the one who went in every day saying, ugh, this is beneath me. And yet they were still prepared to help you move on. Uh, and yeah. they, everyone else was actually just doing their job, <laughs> albeit as a monster. Uh, you were the yeah. one who never got over the fact that you were better than this. Ooh. And it's hard. That's a hard lesson to it learn, is. whether you're 22 or 38. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's tough. It's really weird. It's hard in the book. It's in the movie. They soften it with you know montage, and suddenly I see Um, (laughs) and Adrian Grenier. But in the book, you're just like it's a bitter pill. And that moment when she's in the back of the car with Miranda, and Miranda suddenly it's like, well, I said I'd help you, so I will help you. And that reading that it's a real honor among thieves thing, isn't it? Yeah, and it's like, oh, she's seen you sneering at her, and she's still gonna help you because she recognizes talent. And she's uh, going to actually see this through, even though I personally would have fired her ass six months ago. But, she, I mean, ugh. the thing is, she does give the 10,000 hours regardless of how she gives them. Yeah. Yeah. I guess this is a lesson for our younger listeners. That <laughs> you, don't, you, don't, you don't just have to kill yourself. You also have to smile. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so basically, if there's not a smile on your face, yeah. which is what I was told, you're doing something wrong. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> well, Lindsay, uh, this has been fantastic. Has <laughs> it? I feel so bad. I'm upset and depressed. Yay. Um, yeah. <laughs> I write rom-coms. Read them. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, so um, you have many places where we can find you. Yes. Um, tell us about your podcast. Tell us about your books. Tell us about where you're going to oh, be, how we can see it. I'm all over the place doing anything I shouldn't be doing. Um, primarily, I guess, my books. Uh, I write rom-coms. Uh, there's loads of them. I Heart Hawaii is out now, but uh, I had one last year called One in a Million that was a standalone. So mm-hmm. if you're not into jumping in a series at the end, One in a Million is a good place to be. You can find me on social media at Lindsay Kelk. I will be there instead of working uh, always. <laughs> so come say hi. And yeah, I have a beauty podcast called Full Coverage and a pro wrestling podcast called Titan Fights. Right? So yeah, I get around. You like do get around. Up. Yeah. So you spent a lot of time with wrestlers. I've spent some time with wrestlers, yeah. What's the most surprising thing about wrestling? They're all really nice. Wow. They're all really nice. This has been Sentimental Garbage, and I've been Karen O'Donoghue. You can follow me on Twitter at Zaraline, that's C-Z-A-R-O-L-I-N-E, or email me by the podcast at ZaralineO'Donoghue at gmail.com. This has been a Justice for Dumb Women podcast. Thanks to Harry Harris for the jingle, Gavin Dave for the logo, and Acast for the recording space. Hold up. 